The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. You can find them always at secondmissionfoundation.org. That's all one word, secondmissionfoundation.org. And again, that's secondmissionfoundation.org. Their most recent book is The Hill, A Memoir of War in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. Uh, The Hill has gotten a huge buzz on social media and in the veteran community. Uh, It is uh, something worth trumpeting for Second Mission and a real credit to them. Uh, to put that book out there. So again, check them out anytime at secondmissionfoundation.org. My guest this week was Toby Harnden, and what a great time we had. Uh, Toby has got the gift of gab, and it is gab worth listening to. Toby is a highly accomplished uh, journalist. He was the former uh, foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times of London and the Daily Telegraph, He's reported from 33 countries. He specializes in terrorism and war. Um, He was imprisoned in Zimbabwe. He spent a decade as a Royal Navy officer. He's had a heck of a life, and he's told some very interesting stories for a living. He has also won the 2012 Orwell Prize for books uh, for his book, Dead Men Risen, about the Welsh Guards in Helmand. So I was... Super excited he could be on the show. Uh, obviously, a very accomplished writer, but his most recent book is First Casualty, which is the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. So um, for those that don't remember, I mean, right after 9-11, uh, the small ODA teams and CIA teams that dropped into Afghanistan and linked up with the Northern Alliance and started to take on the Taliban Um, Those were some legendary acts of heroism, legendary uh, battles that we still talk about now, like Kali Jangi. Well, Toby dives into all that in great detail, and he talks about it in in the show uh, about how he approached the writing of it, but his narrative structure I thought was just fantastic. It was a thrilling read, um, so much so that it, it didn't allow me to skip very much as I was trying to make up for time I didn't have and read the book uh, quickly. And I just kept slowing down and reading it word for word. Um, So a real credit to his writing style. And um, we'll talk about it obviously at length in the show. So I won't give you guys too many spoilers here, but again, I was thrilled he could be on. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My guest this week was Toby Harnden, and this is Profiles in Havoc. Toby, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So I have a couple of alibis that I have to throw out as we start this show. Um, I bought the book. 
started reading my way through it. Thank you very much. Life interrupted. And I was like, holy crap, I'm not going to be able to finish this book in time, which I really hate doing because there's so much into it. And I'm saying all this to pay you a compliment because I was like, well, you know something? I've got brief spurts of time that I can start to finish like the second half of the book. And I had the hardest time sticking to my skim job. I started skimming and then I would get sucked into another narrative. And then I would try to skim again. And then another part would catch me and I'd get sucked into it. Uh, I, I, it's about the highest compliment I can pay an author. Your book is brutally difficult to skim. Um, <laughs> not because it's dense or anything like that, but because it is, um, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was such a well-written um insight into so many very nuanced characters. Um, and I want to talk to you about some of them, like David Tyson, mm. who obviously is one of the central figures and some of these emotional moments that you capture um, in, in the best sort of uh, journalistic way, because it's buried amidst really fascinating details and historical context and um, some granularity, and then a nice little emotional uh, meadow kind of opens up where you dive into some of the personalia of some of these people. And uh, I just found it an utterly fascinating, um, really easily addictive book. Um, so it made it an even more exciting opportunity for me to be able to sit down and actually talk to you about it um, as much as I'm not as well read on some of the aspects as I wish I was. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, um, that's, I mean, that's a, I find that um, a great compliment. So yeah, thank you. Well, I try to butter people up right at the top, but, but I do mean, <laughs> I do really mean it. I, it was, it was fascinating. So let me, so here's well, you my, sound sincere. I, so that's, I am that's good. I, appreciate I, I am that. sincere. I am sincere and I'm not a good enough actor to fake it well enough. Um, <laughs> but let me, let me give you my bumper sticker of this book. If somebody were to ask me, um, Hey, you know, what did you think of the book? To me, it was like a high school yearbook of characters and events from 2001 that um, I had known or known of, or at least knew entities involved if I didn't know the actual people involved. And it was like a high school yearbook of kind of, here's the backstory, here's all the things they did, and where are they now? And there's sort of an emotional arc to it. Um, Certainly the pictures that you put out on social are like, I, I, I can get, I go down the rabbit hole with those for hours. Yeah. Um, just, just fascinating stuff, but I feel like I should ask you, um, I know you were working on this book for a long time. Why, why, why this story? Why now? Why did this book come about? <laughs> well, lots of reasons. Um, I mean, I was in Washington DC on nine 11. Uh, you know, I was a reporter. I was walking to the telegraph office, you know, just as the first plane hit. And so like everybody, you know, it changed my life. Uh, it profoundly impacted me, um, and I was I was very frustrated that I had to keep uh, covering, you know, U.S. Uh, politics while yeah. all the cool guys were going to Afghanistan. Um, but I covered. I wrote stories about Mike Spann uh, being killed, and was fascinated by this CIA officer. You know, it was unusual for the name to be right. affiliation to be released. I vividly remember Shannon Spann speaking very movingly at, the, at Mike's funeral in, in Arlington Cemetery in early December 2001. And so that always stuck with me, even as the news agenda moved on, because we were onto Iraq and, 
you know, anthrax attacks and goodness sure. knows axis of evil, goodness knows what else. Um, and then, you know, I was in Iraq uh, in uh, to early, probably early 2004, middle of 2004, maybe. Um, and somebody said, did you ever see the, uh, the uh, footage of that? The other CIA officer who was with Mike Spann, you know, running for his life in the fort. And I hadn't seen it. I looked at it and it was incredible footage. And that was David Tyson, who was, you know, a, it wasn't a paramilitary officer. It was a case officer, a linguist, Uzbek speaking, you know, kind of. Um, and he was wearing Afghan, sort of mixture of Afghan and American gear. I remember this, his eyes, like, you know, the thousand yard stare. Mm. Of he just he just killed all these Al-Qaeda fighters to get out. He'd just seen Mike Spann killed. He didn't know whether he was going to live for another few minutes, another few hours yeah. or what. And I just remember being like, who is that guy? Like, sure. how did he get there? What was his life? What was his life up to that point to place him in the fort at that moment? And what did he go through? And and how did that change his life? And so I was fascinated with David Tyson. And that got me into, you know, being very interested in Kalajangi. And also I was already aware of John Walker Lind, the sure. so-called American yeah. Taliban, really Al-Qaeda you know, the white guy from California who was there in the fort um, and had been, you know, questioned by Mike and David. Um, and so I looked into Kalajangi more and more, which is like a six-day battle for it started when Mike's band was killed on November 25th, 2001, uh, and, and, you know, raged for six days. And it just seemed to me that it had everything. It had uh, Green Berets, CIA, um, British Special Forces, the SBS, Special Boat Service, were there. AC-130s. You had Abdul Rashid Dostum, the warlord from Central Casting. Um, 10th Mountain Division were there. John Walker Lim, the American Taliban, Al-Qaeda. And so I thought, this is incredible. And there was a Navy SEAL, Steph Bass, who was with the SBS. He right. was awarded a Navy Cross. Uh, Mark Mitchell with the Green Beret Major got a distinguished service cross the first in Vietnam. So I thought this is incredible. Like every everything was there. And bits yeah. of the bits of the story had been told, but but not the whole story by any means. And particularly not the CIA side and particularly not David Tyson. And so probably for from about 2012, um, so you know, like eight or nine years before it was published, uh, I thought this is a book. And and uh, so I started started talking to some people in in 2013. Then it got shelved for various reasons. Um, and then, as you know, so in 2019, uh, and I spoke to David Tyson in 2013, and he but he was still serving. He couldn't say that much, but I always mm -hmm. felt like he he wants to unburden himself. He wants the story to be mm -hmm. told properly. Um, and then so yeah, in, in 2019, I was. You know, thinking, you know, it's, it's, you know, getting towards 10 years since I've written a book. I really love writing books. I want to write another book. I've always been fascinated by this. And the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was approaching. The end of our involvement in Afghanistan was approaching whether Trump got elected, re-elected, mm -hmm. or whether Biden got elected. And so it just seemed like the moment. And so that's how it happened. And it coincided um, just by, you know, great good fortune that David Tyson retired from the CIA at the beginning of 2020. And so, so actually just after I'd got the book deal, he contacted me 
and and wow. we'd we'd remained in contact, but it was loose. You know, sometimes I yeah. wouldn't hear from him for a year or two, and um, and he was just like, "Hey, um, you know, sorry, I haven't been in touch for a while. I've just retired." And I was and I was like, "There is a God," you know. <laughs> so I'm ready to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it all just is funny how fate is involved in these things because I think it's a much better book now than it would have been in 2013 because so many people were still serving and there was, you know, there was still sort of operational security considerations and stuff. And so I think it was the, it was the right moment and it just all sort of came together. Yeah. It wasn't the first draft of history. It's the polished draft with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of context and the benefit of uh, people being able to talk now. And and, and that's what makes it, I think, stand up. And I think it, it, it really is, um, it's thorough and, and yeah, definitely fascinating. How did you start to settle on a protagonist? Um, because obviously there's a lot of directions this book could have gone. Yeah. And it seems like there were, you know, Mike Spann obviously has a major role for the part that he's alive. Yeah. Um, you know, David Tyson obviously does. Um, how, how did you start to structure the narrative? Where do, what, what threads did you start to follow to structure that? Uh, well, that's a really good question. I mean, that's something I really wrestled with. And I didn't know. I mean, it's only as, you know, as you're doing the interviews and you're finding out things that you didn't know about before that you suddenly think, holy shit, that's incredible. That that's how I, that's how I can work it. And so it's interesting because, you know, I did a book proposal in 2019 um, and, you know, little Brown gave me a deal on the basis of it. And I remember saying at the time, like, listen, I think this this proposal's pretty good, but trust me, the book's going to be 10 times better because because there's things I'm going to find out. I don't know what it is. I don't know exactly who's going to talk to me. I mean, at that point, I didn't even know that David Tyson would talk to me. And I didn't have anything in the bag, really. I mean, I'd spoken to Mark Mitchell, um, but I said, you know, I said to him, like, listen, you know, I have a track record. Um, I know, you know, obviously there's always this kind of paranoia, but this will be the time when no one will speak to me and they'll find out that I'm useless and it'll be shit. And I won't be able to write the book, you know? So you always have that, right. that fear <laughs> right. screaming in the back of your head. But at the same time, you also, over the years, you build up a sort of confidence that I can't tell you exactly how it's going to work out, but it will work out. And trust me, it's going to be better. And that's exactly what happened so i mean i remember for instance um uh interviewing justin sapp for the first time justin sapp was a 29 year old green beret captain who was detailed to team out the cia's team alpha um for this mission after 9 11 um and he's still serving actually as a colonel based at the uh u.s mission to the united nations in new york and i'm i met him you know, outside some coffee shop in somewhere in New Jersey. And uh, we'd scheduled kind of like an, like a couple of hours. And, and as soon as I started talking to Justin, I thought, well, this is, this is not going to be a couple hours. This is going to be, you know, as many hours as it can take today. And hopefully if he's up for it, and I think he will be many, many, many hours afterwards. And, and so he just started talking and then after about five minutes, he said, just tell me, you know, is this too much detail for you? And I was like, 
No, this is not too much detail because I sort of live for detail. And I, also I could tell that he had a very, very good um, recollection of detail for dialogue and mm. he had a kind of a good way of describing things. And, um, and I remember him saying to me, you know, well, actually, you know, on 9-11, I was, um, you know, I was underwater. I was, I was at the, dive, <laughs> the Special Forces Dive School in um uh in key west and uh you know when the first plane hit and and by the time i got out you know the news had broken and then you know this dive instructor said to me you know have you heard about what's happened in new york and i hadn't and then we watched it on tv and i realized we were at war and as he was telling me that i was thinking like this is brilliant this is like better than fiction because i'd already worked out that um so I already spoken to David Tyson and David Tyson told me that, you know, when the planes hit, he was on a flight from Tashkent to London for a meeting at the CIA's London station about Stinger missiles that had been given to the Mujahideen by the CIA in the 1980s. And that Stinger buyback program, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And so, so you're seeing like all the origin stories happening right yeah. at 9-11. And yeah. so, in my, yeah. so, in, so in my mind, as Justin's talking, I'm thinking like, you know, this is this is incredible because I've got I knew Mike Spann was in CIA headquarters. Uh, I hadn't yet spoken to Shannon Spann, um, but I think I might have already identified that she was in a giant like grocery store. Mm. You know when she heard, yeah. and so I was, so I was, I was as Justin was speaking, I was thinking I've got somebody underwater, I've got somebody in the air, and I've got somebody on the ground on nine yeah. eleven, and 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 that's the start and. Um, it's a very cinematic opening. I felt. I felt like, yeah. and I say that only because not be like you were trying to write it like that, but that I would, I could just visualize that somebody could take this and like the movie writes itself almost. Yeah, like you just see the visuals, you see the juxtaposition, you see the severe contrast and the personalities, the landscape. It's it's a very compelling um, opening, and um, one of the takeaways that I had when I started to read is I thought for um, everybody that was too young for nine 11 or has forgotten details about nine 11, just on the superficial level, this is a great reminder of why we were in Afghanistan. Cause it seems like a lot of people have forgotten why that was Yeah, um, what the stakes were um, that flashback to the mindset of that time, that unprecedented in my lifetime unity that I saw in the United States that we yeah. never had um, just so many of those things. And that's why I say, I go back to that yearbook, you know, analogy, because it felt like, God, that, that was 2001. Yeah. That's exactly the vibe. That's exactly what it felt like. Do you think that's um, well, first, was that an intended consequence when you were writing this? Yes. So in fact, in some ways I did write it to be cinematic, not because I'd like it to become a movie, although obviously I would. And so if any, any right. Hollywood, you know, producers are out there listening, then, you know, I've done a lot of the hard work for you. you you've done um, that. Yeah. It's an easy transition, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, and so I do believe in, you know, it's like narrative nonfiction. It's, it's not, um, you know, a dry as dust, you know, analysis of Afghanistan policy. I mean, you hope that you could, you have takeaways about policy in there, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a history book, but it's, you know, it's something, you know, you want it to read. I, I think you should, it should read like a, th a thriller in some ways. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think scenes are important. I, so I, 
I I like to start each chapter, you know, with a scene rather than just saying, you know, on November the 21st, right. 2001, uh, you know, Bush said this, you know, no, you want a scene, you know, you want, right. you know, uh, like, I don't know, you know, Wolfowitz, you know, at the banquet in the Ronald Reagan Trade Center in Washington, D.C. with the, you know, the great and the good policymakers in their black tie, you know, listening to him talk and he, and he, and he mentions that there were Green Berets, you know, riding on horseback in Afghanistan. That's a scene. Right. You know, I could I could have right. said, you know, the, the, the news that Green Berets and CIA, you know, were in action on horseback, uh, you know, emerged on, you know, uh, December the 7th, 2001 in Washington, D.C. When, you know, so, right, you, right. so I definitely write it. Uh, tr- you take try us and write on the ride. Yeah, yeah, you take us yeah. on the ride. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and I very uh, definitely wanted to capture the mood, which I still vividly remember, uh, that we as a country uh, experienced in nine, uh, on 9-11. I mean, I remember that night, you know, going home after the biggest work day of my life and seeing like Humvees and national guardsmen in, in uniform on the corners of the street. And me thinking, is the next attack going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be next week? What, you know, when's it going to be? And I remember also, you know, um, Bush and, you know, dead or alive. And we want bin, Bin Laden's head on a pike and we need to go kill people. We need to find out who did this. We need to, you know, never get caught like this again. We need to go on offense. We need to connect the dots. I mean, and I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, the, the joint address to Congress, you know, one member of Congress, like Barbara Lee from California voted against authorizing military force. Bush's popularity rating was 90%, you know, better than FDRs after Pearl Harbor. And I remember even at the time thinking, well, that's not going to last. Um, but that was the mood of the country. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, along with the Republicans, were on the hill saying, you know, we need to take the gloves off. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what, you know, CIA, you seem, you know, can't you, um, you know. Well, we were done with the firewalls. You, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah we were like sick of the firewalls. We are sick of the case All gloves. the rule books, yeah. got, you know, yeah. about interrogations and, you know. It's all out. It's all out of the window. We need to go take care of business, and um, and so I, and Co, you know, Kofa Black, who was the director of the Counterterrorism Center, who's you know has a kind of big part in the book, sort of early on. You know, he's like says to Bush, you know, when we're finished, yeah. you know, we're going to see flies walking across their eyeballs, you know, it's which a is a very Kofa yeah. Black thing to say, and it was something he picked up in Africa, sort of back in the day. It was very targeted towards Bush because. You know, Bush was, you know, had this sort of, you know, uh, you know, hang him high kind of right. Texas kind of outlook. But it was also the mood of the nation. You know, it really fitted with how, um, you know, the vast majority of, of people felt. And I thought it was very important. You know, it's yes, you're right. It's not the first draft of history because the first draft of history was the journalism of the time and the reporters sure. who were at Kalajangi and and all the rest of it. Um, but it's, um, it's that point where it, it's enough time has elapsed for you to be able to get all the protagonists and get them to speak honestly. 
uh, and sort of comprehensively, which obviously they can't, they couldn't have done before. Yeah. Um, but it's not like they're all dead or they're all like Gaga and can't remember anything anymore. Right. So right. it's like, you know, it was, it was, I felt it was the right point to do that. So since you brought it up, um, there was, uh, I don't know if amusing is the right word, but there was a, certainly an interesting uh, few moments with the journalists in uh, Mazar Sharif and their yeah. interactions with uh, the ODAs up there and the CIA. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, first off, talk about it from just the point of view of why you decided to include it. Did it seem like it was one of those? Was there a lesson learned? Was it? Uh, was it one of these pieces of trivia that is so easily overlooked that it was important to note the interaction uh, between the journalists and uh, the guys on the ground? Um, what was your takeaway? What was your, your, your uh, I don't know, your, your motive, I guess, in including that? And then talk a little bit about what that was. Yeah, sure. So um, it's funny because as a, I generally don't like working uh, – I don't like writing about journalists that much. Um, I think far too often they're sort of part of the story when they don't need to be. I mean, and we are, you know, I'm a journalist myself, you know, I'm a sort of an observer on the periphery and I don't like to insert myself into situations where I'm actually affecting what happens. You know? Sure, sure. Um, and certainly if I'd been there in Kalajangi, you know, I'd wanted to get all the information I could, but I would not have wanted to get in the way of CIA officers or Green Berets who are trying to rescue uh, comrades or recover the body of uh, of a fallen officer and all that. And and so there have been a, a bunch of documentaries over the years about um, Kalajangi, which have focused um, extensively uh, on journalists. And there were a number of journalists there who did great work. Um, Dodge Billingsley, Arnim Stout, who was the German ARD TV journalist, uh, who was uh, who was there. Alex Perry, who was there for, for Time magazine. Uh, Damien, his French name, I'll sort of butcher it. De Guelder, Guelder um, who was a sort of young filmmaker who shot some in, incredible uh, footage. Um, there was Carlotta Gaul, who was a New York Times reporter, who did some incredible. Uh, writing um, and reporting. And, and we I see do, some of those pictures of those SBS guys shooting at Kalajangi. Yeah. Right? That, that was they a, took. That was like, whoa. That was an Afghan. Crap. That was a young Afghan who did that. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and so I certainly drew on their, um, uh, their material and, you know, and, and credits, credited them for that. And they, and they were there and, and, and I wasn't, but, you know, I didn't want to include, but what, how they got there, and what they were doing, what their day was like, and what they felt—I didn't feel was 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 relevant or that interesting um, compared to you know what David Tyson felt or Justin Sapp or J.R. Seeger, who was the Team Alpha chief, or the Green Berets. Um, but there were a couple of sort of points where the media and um, the guys on the ground kind of like in, interacted, and it was part of the story. And the, the first one was when. Um, on November 25th, so David Tyson, you know, he and Mike Spam were doing an sort of interrogation, a sort of sift of these Al-Qaeda prisoners who were being held in the cellar of a building called the Pink House 
in Kalajangi, which is just outside Mazari Sharif. Um, and there's there's an uprising. They've they've hidden weapons. Mike is killed, and David fights his way out. Which is just incredible. I mean, I I don't think there's probably any American alive who's gone through what some you know something as intense as as sure. what David Tyson went through that day. Um, and he's in this sort of kill or be killed situation. And he, I don't know what his chances of survival were, but 5%, 10%, I don't know. Right. Incredible. Um, and he, he made it to, uh, the, so the pink house was in the, the, the dividing wall that ran east-west through this fortress, which was sort of 19th century sort of mud and brick fortress. It looks like something from the Arabian Nights. David managed to get out of the southern half through a gateway into the northern half and to the, the building on the north side, which was it was known as the headquarters building. It was where sort of where Dostum and the Taliban and the Russians had all had their sort of headquarters, their offices and their sort of, you know, meeting rooms. And um, so David managed to get to there and he, you know, he, he knew that that was sort of relative safety in terms of, you know, the safest place inside the fort. Sure. Um, and there's a German TV crew there. And actually there was a couple of people from Reuters TV there um, and uh, a bunch of Afghans who managed to get out um, and Afghans who were just, you know, doing various things that day who sort of taken cover there. But David bursts into the, through the door of this uh, headquarters building and immediately sort of bumps into um, Arnhem Stout and the, of German uh, ARD TV, and he's on camera. And and Arnhem, who I interviewed for the book, you know, starts asking him questions. And you can see David's eyes. This was the footage I saw in Iraq in 2004. And you can see David's eyes just, you know, and he's just in, he's gone through hell and he's now in another realm of craziness. Like he's an undercover CIA officer who's on camera being asked questions from a German TV reporter. Um, and he, you know, he sort of answers um, and then eventually, and he says some goofy, David says some goofy things like, you know, oh, there was me and some other guy, you know, like he's trying to, you know, he's, right. he, he laughs about it, you know, because he's right. sort of, he was trying to be evasive and who's he trying to kid, you know? Uh, and then he also, he's also said to me, why did I even answer those questions? But, you know, but, you know, he's obviously going through incredible kind of like waves of trauma and, and psychological sort of weirdness. Well, not to mention, I mean, to put a camera in the eye of somebody under who's, who's operating under a official cover, I mean, that's like a soul snatching device. I mean, that that's something that any collections officer worth their salt is going to duck and cover from. So to have yeah. that after you just went through hell. I know. That actually is one hell of a double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's just, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think uh, journalistically, German TV, I mean, they did what they had to do. Right, right. And um, and actually, I think Reuters TV didn't film that. And, you know, ARD made the right decision. And I don't think David would criticize them for doing that. And in fact, has kind of warm feelings towards Arnhem Stout. Mm. Um, you know, because they have a kind of a bond because they, they were there in this sort of, yeah. you know, life and death situation. Um, 
And I think Arnhem has given David, David was awarded the Distinguished Intelligence Cross for his actions that day, which is the CIA's equivalent of the Medal of Honor. And ARD and Arnhem, uh, you know, wrote a letter to the CIA or the US government uh, outlining what David did. And that was one of the reasons mm-hmm. why he got he got that award. So they did, you know, they did the right thing. Sure. Um, but, um, and also they didn't know he was in the CIA. They thought, he, I don't know what they thought he, I mean, he could have been a green beret or right, he could have right. been a contractor. Or oh, yeah, whatever. no, no. 100%. And I think, I think the whole situation, I think in David's mind, you know, at the time, even at the time, and certainly in high it's all bets are off. Like all the rules are out of sure, the window. Sure. Like we're here, we're all in the same boat. We could all die. Um, and so the least, I mean, the least of my worries is, is right. being on camera because by the time it gets on any screens, I may be dead anyway. Right. Um, right. Um, and, and then, you know, David is in the headquarters building for about five hours and, um, and he, you know, he promises that he's, he's going to look after Arnhem and, and the other journalists there and a couple some Red Cross workers were there and he was true to his word. So when they, you know, when they went out and David said, like, it's time to go and they kind of escaped over the back wall, they went, they went together. So David was you know, true to, true to his word. And so I thought it was important to um, sort of capture that. And it's also interesting because, you know, Arnhem's obviously a European, he's a pacifist, you know, he didn't want to do national service. He was in the fort that day because he wanted to do a sort of, you know, warm and fuzzy story about prisoners and, you know, were their human rights being respected? Um, while all the you know war reporters were off in Kunduz, where there was a big battle expected, right. and then all of a sudden he's <laughs> the guy you know with the battle raging around him, yeah. which was which was you know kind of amusing. Um, well, well, Toby, also though your book, I and mean, it, it's funny, but just since you mentioned it, your book is full of juxtapositions. I feel like between the pre nine eleven and the post nine eleven, so you have that where journalists are you know um, doing their job. And now are suddenly thrust into the line of fire. You also have stuff though with Shannon Span mm. where, and with Mike Span's backstory with this brutal divorce and a custody mm. battle and all these mm. very, you know, significant obstacles to happiness and fulfillment and what have you. And then suddenly after 9-11, when his new marriage and new family are suddenly thrust into a whole different light, um, you know, that's another juxtaposition. It seems like a lot of the tensions, and this is what I loved about the book, it was this reminder of shucking off the 1990s and shucking off this uh where we had been mentally geopolitically and all that with this new normal and yeah. the friction that was caused as both everybody tried to figure out what, what the hell does this mean how do we fit in this new paradigm right yeah i think that's a good way of putting it um yes and so so the next interaction with journalists was on november the 27th and so basically by that point, it's almost certain that Mike Spann's dead. Um, CIA guys are trying to recover his body. Um, this, the fight is still going on. Al-Qaeda is still there in the fort. You know, journalists are trying to get their story. And um, <laughs> the, the vehicles roll up outside Kalajangi and they stop. And then, you know, the journalists like sh- are shoving the cameras in their faces. And, you know, and that's the... You know that's the, I think you know more questionable than than what happened on November twenty fifth. Like, was that really you know 
was that really necessary? These guys have got a job to do. It's serious shit going down in there. Um, and it's all a bit kind of staged. And I understand, particularly from TV, you want a sort of confrontation and you, you want somebody to, yeah. you know, smash a camera or, you know, swear at you or whatever. And so there was this kind of argy-bargy sort of going on between the Green Berets and CIA, you know, um, and, and Arnim is then like on the other side, he's back being a journalist. He maybe, I don't know, he maybe feels a little bit guilty that he was sort of a bit of a collaborator on November 25th because David used a satellite phone to essentially to call it airstrikes, you know, which killed people. Um, and so, and so Arnim's, you know, you know, so Scott, it's funny cause I know all these people now, but so Alex Hernandez, who's the deputy chief of, of team alpha is, you know, he's the kind of senior guy there and he's pissed at being swarmed by these journalists. Actually, he told me he was more pissed that whoever was driving the vehicle had, had stopped where they stopped right by the journalists instead of driving on. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, and Scott Spellmeyer, um, who was sort of the number three on team alpha became a very senior officer and a Kabul station chief. And he's, um, you know, and he'd already, he'd been wounded in the battle of Mogadishu in, 93 and you know this sort of wasn't his first radio but he's just like you know he's very kind of mild-mannered guy scott but he's like you know cameras off you know right. no pictures right. Right. um and and then arnim's sort of like you know uh you have no rights you have no authority you know sort of grandstanding and i know what he's trying to do because you know it's a good tv moment if some american just uses his rifle butt to smash your camera and Alex, you see, Alex is just, you know, he wants to punch him or whatever, I'm sure. But um, you could you could see him just sort of thinking, like, I'm on camera. So he's just like, put that in your notebook. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then he kind of storms off. So, you know, it was just, uh, I felt that it was, and, the, you know, this, the point you make about the pre-9-11 era and the post-9-11, this was a moment for that because because journalists were now, part of the story and you know in, yeah. i became one an embedded journalist embedded with the military and and so you know we were often present for events um in a way that we hadn't before um you know i mean the word journalists you know sort of on the ground during the battle of Mog mogadishu for, for instance right. or embedded right. journalists and so i thought it was a it was a little bit of a a kind of a sign of of, of things to come as well um, so I sort of, so I wanted to, um, I wanted to capture that. So Toby, you really started writing it in earnest then in 2019, right? When the book proposal went out, was that when you really kind of laser focused? And I know you've done all this research and all these pre-interviews going back years, but that's really when you started to get after well, it, right? Well, really more like 2020. I mean, it was very, um, it was very intense. It was, you know, it was, I mean, I started physically writing um, in the Serena Hotel in Kabul yeah. in early November 2020. That's when I actually started writing because I, because you know, I'd gone over there to interview Dostum, and I was waiting in Kabul um, for the word about when I could see him, and you know, I needed to go to Masri Sharif, yeah. and so I had a you know a bit of um, time on my hands. 
And I remember thinking like, shit, you know, I, I probably need to start writing this thing. <laughs> and, you know, I, I write on a deadline and I tend to, oh, okay. what I want to do is amass all the information uh, I can. And then when I have to write, I write. So I, I, you know, even as a journalist, um, you know, you're supposed to, if you go to an event, you're supposed to write like, the bottom six paragraphs before you get there, the background stuff. I would never do that. I would just, I would read about it and I'd just kind of have it in my head, but I didn't write until I had to. And, you know, there were a few times when I've tried to write, a, you know, a few bits and pieces early on. And I always find I never use that stuff. It gets overtaken by events. So it's sort mm. of time wasted. So that that's just my sort of nature. So, um, but that really didn't leave you a lot of time for interviewing, right? I mean, you must have been packing those interviews in because it looks incredibly well-researched. Like you talked to a lot of people, but that was yeah. a really condensed timeline that you were talking to these folks in. Yes, it was. I mean, I did a ton of, inter- you know, I did a ton of interviews throughout 2020. And then the other th- the other thing I do in my um, editor, Vanessa Mobley, who's just actually just now that senior opinion person at the New York Times has just taken a new hmm. job, like left publishing. Wow. Um, you know, I'm sure she was tearing her hair out at points because, because I start writing really late, but I also finish researching really late. In fact, I finish researching <laughs> really just before I press the button for the final book. And so as I'm writing, I'm also continuing to do interviews. Um, I'm, uh, and then even during the, you know, you have the first pass, the second pass, you know, when it's coming back. And if there's, you know, this somebody that I haven't spoken to that suddenly comes through, you know, the window is closing and I've spoken to all the main people, but I keep, I just feel like you have to use the time. You have to, yeah, you have to keep going up until uh, the end. So the, it means there's a lot of moving parts, but it's just, and, you know, I mean, this was a very, it was a very fixed deadline because it was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so in, you know, for previous books, you can, you could, you know, at a certain point you can say, you know, you know, remember when I said, you know, it's in the contract, I should deliver it by September. Well, would, would December be okay? And and knowing in your mind that maybe it's going to be January and that's okay. This was right. not that type, yeah. type of situation. I, I had to get it done. So it just became very uh, compressed, but, you know, I just think it's, Anyway, it's part of my nature and sort of background as a journalist. Like, there's nothing like a deadline. A gun to, to your head. Yeah, yeah, a gun to your head to make you focus, right? Like, so, like if an editor says to me, and it has happened occasionally, uh, I'll say, um, you know, when you know when do you need it by? And they say, oh, well, when can you do it? I'm like, no, no, when do you need it by? And they're like, oh, can I'm like, no, you need to fucking tell me. I'm it needs to be by then. And then when I haven't done it by then, you need to pick up the phone and say, where the fuck is it? You know, <laughs> that it doesn't help me to say I've got all the time in the world. So anyway, that's just the way I am. How much did it help um, in a perverse way that uh, everything was wrapping up? And by the, while you're doing this writing, it is literally while President Biden is saying we're pulling out, it is literally while, you know, you're starting to see a mez fall to the Taliban yeah. and all that. And people were people more willing to talk because they're like, holy shit, this train is leaving the station and people are going to stop caring about my story very quickly in the near future. If I don't get this out, is there any sense of that? Well, 
Um, so I guess I, I'm trying to think now. The book was published like September 7th, 2021. Wow. And so I think the, the button was pressed, the final button, probably in May, maybe early June. Oh, okay. So, so before the government fell. But I knew it was going to fall. I mean, I didn't know. I thought it you know, might take a few months or sure. maybe up to a year. But when I visited in November, December 2020, it was clear to me it was over. I mean, already we had Trump and Biden were, were, were pulling out the troops anyway. Um, but, you know, I was in Masri Sharif and I couldn't get to Shebagan, which was Dostum's stronghold, which should have been a 45-minute drive, but it, it took me like 10 days to get there because I had to, yep. you know, get a flight. I had to wait nearly two weeks to get out, to get a helicopter. I mean, I overstayed my visa. I had to bribe my way out at Kabul Airport. Um, Who was flying you around, by the way? Was it the Afghans flying yes. you around? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it uh, like. yes, it was. Yeah. So uh, it was Dostum, Afghan military. Um, you know, I f- flew back out of Shebagan on an, uh, an old russian mi-17 that was afghan army yeah and um you know i kept on going to the airstrip to get out and but there was fighting going on you know in the war you know sure. at one point they sure. were like you know um there's a there's a body on the helicopter i was like i don't mind i'll see the body before i was kind of going in and they're like well uh, you know, we shouldn't and it had right. to return this body to some village and um so i just had this sense when I was there, that this is over. Like, you know, yeah. the Taliban is controlling so much of the country that it's just a matter of time. And and then, so I had the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but as, you know, as you said, the rest of the writing went along. Um, but, you know, Biden then announces that we're going to pull out all the troops by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I was like, couldn't believe it. Like, this is, you know, it's exactly sort of on my timeline. And so, you know, I do think it's weird how just everything, uh, you know, plays into create a sort of an environment for for a book or for anything, I guess. But like COVID as well, you know, part of it, I was like, oh, Jesus, you know, um, you know, this is going to mean I can't travel. It's going to be really hard. You know, people are going to be nervous and they, you know, I can't, you know, these are often these are the types of things you don't want to be talking about over Zoom. And CIA people and special right. forces people, they tend to want to look you in the eye and yeah. do it face to face. And they want to know when you're recording them and when you're not, and all, all that kind of stuff. And, and for me, as in terms of doing interviews, um, I want to hang out with people, I want to see them in their houses and say, Hey, I've got some pictures upstairs, or oh, there's this document, or you know, I want to have drinks with them or have have a meal and get to know them and just and so I was worried about that. And actually, I think it it helped me because people were at home and people were reflective. Um, I think the the fact that it was all coming to an end in Af- Afghanistan meant that there was a kind of a, you know, looking back yeah. in hindsight and at the beginning uh, and, and because people were at home and sort of reflecting on things more generally about their lives. I think it played into that. And then the other thing is just the types of people who are involved in this uh, are not the types of people to be that worried about COVID. <laughs> so, so actually right. they well, and I have, a, you know, I'm not, I was never bothered about it. You know, I was just gonna, you know, just 
do my stuff and I'll follow the rules and what have you, but I'm not just going to sit in my house worried that I'm going to get this thing. You know, I'm, I'm not old. I'm in, you know, pretty good physical shape. So I was never worried about getting it. Um, and, and so, you know, for instance, David Tyson, I remember going to see David um, and just, walking in and shaking his hand. It's, oh, great. You know, somebody's just going <laughs> to shake my hand, you know, because right. of course right. I now know David, like just freaking hates masks and hates all the stuff about COVID. But just, just generally speaking, you know, uh, nobody said, uh, you know, a couple of people wanted to wear masks, like one was right. about to have a hip replacement and really didn't want to get it. And so it was being pretty cautious, but I still, I still saw him, but we sat outside, you know, in masks, but, um, I actually think the COVID thing um, actually helped me because people were sort of more avail- available, and as I say, in a, in a more reflective mood. So I don't, I don't want to. I mean, I'm not sure there's necessarily spoilers in your book, but to the extent that there are, I don't want to totally destroy them. But I do want to really ask about um, one of the many moments when I was trying to skim that made me stop, go back five pages, and start reading word for word. Um, everything you were writing. And certainly one of those moments was at the end when you sat down with Dostum. Mm. And I, I mean, full disclosure, I, I couldn't believe where you were when you were there. Um, I left Afghanistan about maybe three weeks before then. And, um, and I knew that area well, and I knew how inhospitable it was becoming. Yeah. Um, so the fact that you were there then, you were probably, <laughs> you probably had more placement and access than any American passport holder in, in, in the world at that point. I don't think anyone else was that was pushed in that far. Um, and that conversation you had with him, I thought was incredibly interesting, especially in light of what we now know was about to happen in the next 365 days. Yeah. What's your take on Dostum? Obviously, you know, you, you, talk about the ODA and CIA's um, takes on him back in 2001 yeah. and how, you know, he was perceived one way. They, I think the word you used was revered them, him in many yeah. respects yeah. and on all that. And, and he certainly has had a, uh, you know, there's been a lot of mixed stuff on him. I know just for my own sake, I know the word on him that I always heard in Afghanistan was you say Dostum, um, an Afghan thinks Russian that they just yeah. would, that they, they were like, yep, Dostum and his Russian friends. And that was just kind of the way it was. I always heard it. Um, mm-hmm. in just in my limited aperture. Um, what was your take on him though? Because you two seem like you had a good rapport. So you probably have more insight into him than most. Yeah. I mean, he's a fascinating character. So he's now, I guess he's 68, 69. Um, it, I mean, it's incredible that he survived. I mean, talk about the odds of David Tyson surviving Kalajangi. I mean, Dostum surviving 20 years after after 9-11. So he's a real survivor. So, you know, he's an ethnic Uzbek and he'll always be an Uzbek and his complete focus is the Uzbek people. You know, he'll talk about, you know, an Afghanistan and, and, and what have you, but he's for the Uzbeks. Um, in... Before 9-11, you know, he he had this, um, you know, 
fearsome reputation of sort of like murdering people and crushing, you know, enemies under the uh, tracks of, of tanks and sort of throwing people off mountains. And and there's no doubt that Dostum had and has blood on his hands. Sure. But that comes with the territory in Afghanistan. I mean, so this term warlord, I mean, there's actually, there's a guy called Charlie Santos, who's an interesting, small, very minor character in the book, who yeah. was sort of, you know, buccaneering sort of adventurer who, you know, knew all these guys. And he was just, you know, he worked for the UN. He was trying to do an oil deal. Um, and he was like, you know, uh, on the term warlord, well, show me somebody who's in a position of power in Afghanistan who isn't a warlord. I mean, it's been at war for decades. And Charlie Santos is the one that liked Dustin a lot more than Masood, right? That he yes. didn't trust the Tajiks, but he liked the Uzbeks. That's right, yes. Whether or not his contract aligned with his ideology. Yes, on that's that, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. be that as it may. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so Dostum loved this. So there's elements of myth about this. So, for instance, I don't think he ever crushed an enemy under attack, but that was written by Ahmed Rashid, um, Pakistani journalist who's you know, written some great books and actually worked for the same paper as me, the Daily Telegraph, for a while. So, but that—that's something that's always going to be st- stuck with with Dostum. And I think he's, in some ways, he's his own his worst enemy because I think he reveled in this image and it worked for him. You know, sure. you want to be, you want to be feared yeah. from your own people. In some ways, you want to be respected but also feared, and 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 your enemies. And you know, but he's he's not illiterate. Um, is sometimes is 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 written, but you know he's got a fifth grade education or, or something. Sure. You know he, sure. um, so he's certainly not, um, you know, he's not like Masood. He doesn't sort of speak French and write poetry, um, and he's this brutish. He looks like a brute, and he kind of is a brute. And he for in after nine eleven, he was what America needed. He's somebody who was going to go fight and kill the Taliban and not wait around and, and, you know, uh, and he certainly he's, you know, a rich man and, you know, he got a million dollars when the team alpha arrived. Um, but, you know, he's a, he was a war fighter. And there's a lot to be said for being the enemy of my enemy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That goes a long way then. Yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, the Soviet thing, um, you know, his ethnic Uzbek, Uzbekistan was, um, a satellite of the uh, of the Soviet Union, um, because he's not a Pashtun, and the Uzbeks, you know, aren't Pashtuns. Uh, they're aligned more with, with the sort of you know secular, um, well, not Western because they were you know East European sort of Soviet, but it was a cultural um, connection between the Uzbeks. In Afghanistan and Uzbekistan and and the Therefore and the Soviet Russia. Union, sure. and so Dustin wasn't a communist. Um, he's more of a secularist, and you know he doesn't really have an ideology because it's just whatever works for me. And by extension, the Uzbek people. So although he did fight with the Soviets, um, you know, against the CIA-backed Mujahideen. Um, it was just convenience. And Dawson is notorious for switching sides. You know? Right, right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, he, he he has all that baggage. The other thing that he's always going to be 
connected with, which I cover in the book. Um, and I asked him about um, in that interview was the containers. So there was this allegation that um, large numbers of prisoners were either sort of baked to death by or suffocated by being kept in these shipping containers um, in sort of early December 2001 or whether some of them were shot. And the numbers, you know, huge number, you know, like starts from the hundreds and I've, I think I've seen 10,000 prisoners and then um, various human rights groups um, got hold of this and there were stories about the Dashtalali desert and bodies being buried and and it just it it got attached to Dostum and uh it's always going to be uh always going to be with him and so i asked i asked him about this and i expected him to just deny everything um but in fact he said to me well you know yes i did have this commander um you know he was young and emotional too of his brothers been killed by the Taliban and yeah, he did shoot a few people in the container, but it wasn't as many as you think. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, you know, and I wasn't there and I didn't order it. And, um, and I thought his answer was maybe not as com complete and it was somewhat self-serving, but it felt it had a degree of, honesty in it i mean he didn't just deny everything never happened you know but the, th the thing is that uh, dostum's enemies in the west you know like the state department sure you know or you know different western governments his enemies in pakistan his enemies within afghanistan were always going to latch on to something like that it was perfect for them and they and they did and they and they ran with it and then by extension you know of course there was a documentary um, in which, you know, with not very plausible evidence, really, that tried to link it to the Americans. Oh, you know, of course, there were right. Americans there. The CIA was involved, the Green Berets. I mean, I've never seen any evidence of that. And, you know, just as an aside, um, and I, I did mention this in the, in the sort of author's notes about the book, is... The reality of Afghanistan is, and this is not just Afghanistan, but particularly Afghanistan is, to, and this is a this is a problem in reporting and researching is to an extent people will tell you anything. If you're paid, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, And I remember, I also remember in Iraq, it's like there's an economy around this, you know. So you're a journalist, or a human rights researcher, or a CIA officer, and you've got lots of money. And um, and these people want to get the money and they want to work for you. And so they're kind of like, well, what are you in the market for? Oh, you're in the market for Taliban atrocities. I can give you some Taliban atrocities. You're in the market for atrocities by Dostum. Sure. You know, <laughs> you know, in Iraq. Here's what like, I oh, got. Come here. Look, yeah, you, the code. Here's what I got. You want to hear about, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. you want to hear about the, how this invasion was terrible and is, and has destroyed my family's life. Or do you want to hear about, Saddam being a really bad person who tortured my yeah. relatives. Yeah. And yeah. um and so you know when I see an anonymous quote from an Afghan saying, "Oh yes, you know, I was I was there when, you know, 
Americans in blue jeans, you know, stood by as prisoners in the containers were shot. You know, I have a yeah. skepticism uh, about it. Um, and also there were numerous stories about Kalajangi, you know, Mike, you know, Mike Spann was dragged into a basement and tortured. Mike Spann escaped. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a there was a journalist there who was who was, you know, beaten up. There was you know, all sort. I mean, it sounds kind of derogatory, but you know, Afghans will tell you anything. And there's there's a there's a there's a bit on on November twenty fifth by Glenn, who's a CIA medic. He pulls yeah. out a few thousand five thousand dollars and was like, "Here's a reward for." You know, does anybody know the whereabouts of of, of Dave or Mike? And of, and of, immediately is sort of you know besieged by Afghans saying, "Oh yeah, I just saw I just saw Mike walk out," and he's just like this typical Afghan bullshit, you know. And well, um, there's something about being in a leveraged country, right? You yeah. know, I mean that that's always been my theory about Afghanistan is that when your entire fate has always been decided by your neighbors, that you're very used to knowing how to play both sides. And you're yeah. very used to, and it's the land of yes. Yes, I'm, I'm facilitating everything. So if you're actually trying to follow the breadcrumbs, you end up going crazy because everything's a yes. And, yeah. and they're just trying to, they're, the manners are great. And they're, they're trying not to offend and trying to hedge their bets. And yeah. it, it, it is, it's brutal. I wanted to ask you just on a, a, a granular level, when you talk to Afghans, did you, I've, I've talked about this with uh, a couple of folks in the past on the show, and I want to see if you've had any experience with this also where um, Afghans sometimes talk at, I, I call it talking at right angles to your questions. And I think a lot of it, my, my take is, my amateur psych- psychiatric take is that they're trying to sit on the fence until they figure out what it is you really want. And then they can please you by answering the way that you need to, you need to be answered. But that whenever you ask, uh, when you start asking questions, everything, um, it's, the answers always come at right angles. There's never a straight um, yes or no. Did you find that? Do you know yeah, what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 very much, okay. very much. And, and so, oh, sorry. So, yeah, yeah, so as, you know, as a, as a Westerner and, you know, and it's why I think it's kind of laughable in some ways, you know, when fact-checking goes on of, of, of foreign reporting. And I see some stuff, um, you know, from overseas when I see quotes from people, I think there's, there's no way that was ever said. But you've got the person who's being interviewed. You've got the translator who's being yeah. paid. Who's and then you've got the reporter who's trying to who's just you know. I've been in situations where you know somebody's family's been killed in Iraq. Family's been killed, and you're interviewing this poor like father who's grieving, and you've got this translator whose English is pretty ropey because. You know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal bought up all the best translators and you're left with a lot, you know. Um, <laughs> this is real life, you know. Yeah, it and, is. It is. And, and so I'll say, you know, you know, I'm so pleased to meet him. You know, I'm so sorry about what happens to his family. Can you ask him, you know, you know, how he feels about this just unimaginable tragedy? <laughs> and the guy will be like, Blah 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 blah, and I'm like looking at the translation. But I'm like, what's he saying? And it'll go on for like feels like several minutes, and I'll say like, what did he say? And he says, he say he very sad his family dead. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking? You know, yeah. no, yeah. He's, he's just poured his heart and soul out about how he feels, and 
I can't put that in the paper. All the nuance, all the all the gray just got washed out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so so I have to say, like, ask him about ask him about this. Did he say about this? And then I have to piece it together and and make a, a quote that, you know, and then it's purely down to to me of my sort of ethics and judgment about, you know, basically creating a quote that rep you know fairly represents what that person yeah. says. And so sometimes I see quotes that are just, um, you know, poetic. And I'm like, that, the guy didn't say that. The reporter made that up in, you know, in collusion with the... With the translator, right? Yeah. Right. And so, um, well, that yeah. Le- that leads me to think, I mean, did you ever step back and ask yourself why Dustin wanted to talk to you now at that late in the game, knowing that he's a survivor, knowing that he's probably got to think three or four steps ahead and he can tell, you know, there's plenty of writing on the wall for him to interpret about what's coming down the pike. Why do you think he did sit down with you at the end? What do you think he stood to gain? Well, yeah. I mean, Dawson is one of those people who always purports to be a difficult person to interview, but actually gives a lot of interviews (laughs) because he's a showman and he likes to sort of hold court. Um, You know, there are American politicians like that. Um, I can't think of any, (laughs) but um, I mean, I think part of it was he fe- he felt and feels this very strong bond with uh, David Tyson, J.R. Sitka, who uh, the team alpha chief. Um, you know, Mark Nooch, who was the uh, captain commanding ODA five nine five for horse soldiers. You know, he he loves them, and it's re- and they love him in return, in in their own s- sort of way. And so, one side. Um, you know, kind of gained the 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 trust of um of the CIA people and the and the Green Berets, then I think their word really counted something like this, you know, because they basically said, you know, this is basically a good guy. He's he's gonna be fair, he's not gonna screw you, you know, he's a proper right. person, but he's not gonna screw you over. Um so I think uh there was that. And then I think the other thing is um I mean I felt you know in the past I've interviewed you know, like IRA commanders and people. Um, and I've always thought, well, why, why would they speak to me? And, and a big part of it is because I was there because I was the person who went uh, to see them. Yeah. And it's just a kind of a human thing. If you're, you know, if the person is prepared to, you know, take risks and spend money and time to talk to you, then you, you, you know, you will lean in the direction of talking to them. I mean, I also think, you know, he, he certainly had a political message, which was, you know, uh, allow him, give me the troops yeah. and the time to fight the Taliban. And even at this, you know, the 11th hour, I'll, I'll be able to save Afghanistan. And I think he, you know, he'd been, you know, he said this versions of that before, and I think he knew, um, it wasn't going to make any difference, but he was still going to give it a shot. So he certainly had that sort of message, sort of plaintive message of, of just like, you know, because he, I mean, he was cut off by the state department uh, because of the containers stuff. And because he just, you know, he wasn't really, uh, you know, desired in polite company, you know, he was, he was the guy to fight the battles, but once the Taliban had gone, they didn't want to deal with, a guy like that. And so, you know, I think he was still, I felt it was almost like a little boy, almost like, well, why don't they like me? You know, I fought with them. Um, 
uh, and so I still think there was a part of part of him that was like, well, maybe even now they'll suddenly realize that actually I'm not that bad a guy after all, or I'm the bad guy that you need. Um, and so, and you know, also it's somewhat in Dawson's very sophisticated in, in some ways, but he's also, um, he doesn't understand, you know, a lot of Afghans are like this. They, they think that because, you know, American citizen now have been for 13 years. Um, and they don't realize that, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm just a journalist. I don't have any access. To, you know, the right. president's not going to listen to me. Right. And so um, there's this sort of sense that, you you know, you're American. Uh, you're sort of powerful and influential. And if I tell him this, then he's going to and persuade him, then he's going to go back and say, you know, really, you should you should give some dust and some weapons <laughs> and let him loose. So I think there's a little bit of that as well. So all those yeah. all those sort of things. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And to your knowledge, has anyone has any Western journalist spoken to Dostum since you? It seems like I don't think so because that's late in the game. Yeah, yeah. So, so he very nearly died of COVID in July of twenty twenty one, and um, I got I sort of got word of this, um, and because I hung out with his doctor a lot in Shebagan, in the guest house because I was sort of stranded there. And so I would, I would have breakfast most days with Dossum's doctor and got to, got to know him pretty well. Um, and, um, you know, so I was, I was talking to him and it was like Dostum nearly, very nearly died. You know, I, th- I thought he was going to die. A lot of people thought he was going to die. And so at that point I was thinking like, wow, I think I got the last interview with Dostum. <laughs> you know? wow. Wow. Um, but um, he, he did, he did recover um and i've got pictures of him lying on what looks almost like a deathbed but he did recover and he's now in ankara in in turkey uh in sort of back in exile and i haven't seen any uh interviews with him so so far yeah i want to ask about the pictures because that's um i don't know if that was your idea or a publicist or editor's idea to put all those out on social media and trickle those pictures out but it couldn't have been a more effective advertising campaign. Those pictures are just incredible. Where did, were people forthcoming with them? Were, were you just getting inundated with pictures that people had had in a shoebox for 20 years? Or what was the story with that? Yeah, so it was, it was certainly my idea. And it wasn't like planned. It's just, I mean, I love pictures. And um, you can tell, you can tell. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I took a lot of care over the ones to put in the book. Um, but, you know, it's always the case, you know, you, um, you know, it's not a picture book, you know, you have to, you can, there's only so many you can, um, you can uh, include. And so I had all these images. Um, and so basically, uh, you know, it's 20 years ago, everybody's retired. And um, so a couple of the Green Berets were really in, into photography and just, you know, gave me thumb drives full of pictures wow. And then somebody else um, gave me a thumb drive, which I think had about 8,000 pictures on it, <laughs> you know, which I don't know where it all came from, but it was um, Green Beret units, SBS, CIA were in there because I guess nobody, people weren't being careful about their 
face has been shown or anything because it was all sort of in-house. It wasn't digital back then right. also, right? Yeah. So. Well, most of it was digital, thankfully. But not, but it wasn't being shared the way it was. Right. So yeah, there was no social media. And, yeah. So the, right. It's yeah. not like now where people are like, you know, as soon as a, a phone comes down, you're like, this could be on the internet in the next, you know, two minutes. Right. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I was just given all this stuff and I had it and I just thought, um, it's just a great way of, of sort of enticing new potential readers for the book, but also giving something to the people who are really into it. Like, you know, yeah. here's some yeah. more. Um, and it just enables me to put out little, you know, small excerpts. Um, and I don't know, I find it, I find it fun. And, um, and it's, I think it has helped sales and it's helped me, you know, I think I had, uh, like 300 followers on Instagram before the book was published. And now I've got like seven and a half thousand. And, um, you know, I used to post pictures of my freaking breakfast and my dog and, you know, something like, like a leaf, you know, in the park or something, you know, and get, Although like, I did like the one of you and your dad's uh, Navy jacket. Oh, I thought yeah. That was brilliant. That was a brilliant picture. Oh, I'll give you that. So, yeah. So occasionally, very occasionally I'll do um, something like that. That's sort of, sort of personal. Um, but it's also been useful to me because, you know, like lots of people used to overshare way too much on social media mm-hmm. and uh, you know, funny things the kids said, or just, you know, pictures or whatever. And, um, and now, because I, I feel like, you know, those seven and a half thousand followers don't want to see a picture of my breakfast. So I'm not going to post it, which is good for me because it means I'm not going around thinking like, Oh, that's a really interesting breakfast. I need to put a picture and now oh, I'll see how many, Oh, 20 people liked it. That means I made really good breakfast. I'm a really interesting person. So it gets me away from all, all that stuff. So to, to stay on brand and the brand yeah. is, you know, yeah. the book, and maybe some other, you know, military stuff I've done or whatever. Um, and so been, I found it very enjoyable, actually. I, I believe it. And have there been knock-on effects with that? Have you noticed that people are reaching out to you because they see the stuff and they're like, hey, I got a story for you. Oh, yeah. So you knew this guy. I can fill in the blank on that. And yes. there's kind of second and third order effects that start yes. to happen. Yes. And so, um, so I'm not a great person on weapons and gear. I'm okay. But quite often I'll, I'll post something and people will say, Oh, it's this type of gun or it's this vehicle or, you know, Oh, this, you know, like I did a picture of um, Mike Spann's chest rig and somebody was like, Oh, that's a Chai com, you know, Chinese communist. And somebody gave me chapter and verse of that bit of gear. And so in some ways it's um, frustrating because I'm like, God, if only I'd known that I could have put that in a, Where were you a year in ago. Book. Yeah. 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 And so that always happens with books that, that people come out of the woodwork afterwards and you think, damn, you know, I really would like to interview you for the book. Um, but nobody, luckily nobody's come out and, you know, like reveal something that would completely change the narrative or just would have been so incredible that I'm just sort of kicking myself. that I didn't know them, but it is nice. It's just, I mean, I feel that the, um, you know, I'm doing podcasts, I'm doing events with, um, Team Alpha members. I'm speaking at the CIA next month, as long as they change their COVID rules by then. Um, and so I feel like it's still a living story for me. I'm still interested in in you know filling in gaps, and occasionally I'll hear little things and think, 
you know, oh, that's that that completes the picture, or you know, I understand that that better now. So I like that. It's a way of me keeping, rather than just being like the book's out, I publish it, that's it. It's it keeps. It's a living story. Yeah, and I, I sort of right? I, I I like that, and also it's just introduced me to. I mean, I think you contacted me through Instagram. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it introduces me to people I wouldn't yeah. otherwise meet. I, you know, um, I think for future books and stuff, it means I've, you know, built up a sort of a following or a co- yeah. community of, of people. Um, well, I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm ordering your other books right now. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, like, I, I, I know so little about Northern Ireland. And I mean, seeing the other books you've written, I can't wait to read them. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. So I've enjoyed, I've been, I've enjoyed that. And I, you know, I like engaging with people. Um, and, and this is a way for me to engage with people on something that I want to engage on, you know, sure. and, 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 and not to just be one of those, um, sad people just always oversharing details of their <laughs> right. life, right. their humdrum life. You know, I, 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 I'd feel remiss if I didn't bring it up. So I just want to make mention of um, your background because I think um, probably a lot of our listeners are are like, okay, cool, bitching. You got this awesome journalist on. He wrote a book. Cool. But you come to this subject matter, honestly. I mean, for you, it sounds like the Navy, the British Navy was going to be a career, wasn't it? Early on before you left? Yeah. So my background... Yeah, so I'm fourth generation military, and um, I really enjoyed listening to you and Char- was it Charlie yep. talking about Zulu? Yeah. Um, so um, this is going to be relevant. So my grandfather. Uh, so I grew up, um, you know, talking to my grandfather about his service in World War II and looking at his medals and his cool things, and he he was in the South Wales Borderers, and the South Wales Borderers were descended from the 24th Regiment of Foot, who were the guys at Rourke's Drift. Wow. And so I, and it, interestingly, I think my grandfather would talk more about that than he would his own experiences in World War II. And I wish I'd sort of cottoned onto that and tried to pin him down and say like, what did you do in the war, Granddad? Right, right. But, you know, so the movie Zulu and the stories of, of Rourke's Drift and the Victoria Crosses that were awarded there, you know, I grew up on that stuff and that that fired my sort of imagination. And, um, you know, I think I was always going to join the military. I always wanted to. I joined the Navy because, I mean, that grandfather's in the Army. His father was in the Army in the Royal Berkshire Regiment um, in the uh, late 19th century. So he fought in Egypt wow. and the Sudan. Wow. Um, but my father was... Uh, join the Navy. And I guess, you know, it's just a sort of a, a classic, you know, like you, you try to live up to your dad and all that stuff. And there was right. definitely pressure from him um, to do it and all, but it, it fitted with me in that I grew up in Manchester, an industrial city in Northwest of England, and I wanted to get out. And um, so, uh, so yeah, I joined the Navy, um, you know, and I got a sponsorship through college, but I ended up doing 10 years um, I'm not sure whether I always intended it to be a full career. I mean, I joined on a full career to age 50. Um, and, uh, you know, there were times when I was kind of 
enthusiastic about it and thought oh, I'm going to go all the way and I need to do, you know, I mean, usually if I'm in a system, I'll tend to sort of play by those rules and it, you uh, have to do this and you have to do that and I'm competitive. And so I need to get this job and I need to get promoted early and I need to do this. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, I think there's always this sense that, you know, uh, I mean, I was a bit, I was frustrated because uh, I joined in 85 uh, the age of 18. I turned so you, like, you missed the Falklands. So exactly. So I missed the Falklands yeah. in 82 and I was, I was applying for the Navy uh, when the Falklands War was on. Uh, and uh, I, re- I remember the newspaper, Manchester Evening News, a Coventry sunk, like HMS Coventry, a Type 42 destroyer sunk. Holy shit, ships are being sunk. You know, it's like, so I missed it. And so there was this sense, uh, Cold War was coming to an end. And it was, it was like, you know, we sailed to lots of nice places. I went all around the world. I went mm. to Australia twice. I joined ships in Hong Kong twice. I went to the Caribbean all around Europe, went to Pakistan, um, went to Diego Garcia, but it never seemed like, what's it all for? You know, the Cold right, War's over. Right. You know, there's a Gulf War, which I tried very hard to get involved in, and they felt they could win it without me. And so I stayed it was stayed in Scotland. And so... Kept Scotland safe. That's good. Yes, that's yeah. right. Uh-huh. Protecting the home front. <laughs> so I felt that um, it was sort of lacked meaning. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it wasn't, you know, the post 9 11 era where, yeah. you know, I think if I'd been in the military then, I'd, you know, I would have. I was going to ask. Yeah. You think you would have stayed at 9 11 happened? And yeah. I mean, I mean, I think post 9 11 for the Royal Navy would have been pretty frustrating because you're, you know, you're in the services, but your contemporaries would have been platoon commanders in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. So, I mean, there was a, there was a period when, you know, I was really jealous uh, of, of people who were sort of 20 years younger than me, who had been platoon commanders in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And I was like, you know, awarded military crosses and stuff. And I remember being kind of awe of these people thinking like, I, you know, God, I wish yeah. I'd, I wish I'd done that. You know, because as a kid, that's what I imagined, you know, the sort of, you know, the heroic, you know, medal winning bravery and and, and stuff. I mean, I think I've matured a little bit now, um, you know, because those things come at a cost. Certainly being a platoon commander in Helmand in 2009 could have lost both your legs. You could have been killed. You, you, you know, experienced, saw some horrendous things and that, you know, weighs on you. And so, you know, um, I used to kind of dismiss those things in my mind, really thinking that, you know, this, I had this kind of almost reverence for combat, you know, that you need to do it. And as a man, you need to prove yourself. And if you get the opportunity to do that, that's, you know, and so I, I, you know, I, I think I, I temper that sort of, um, view quite a lot, uh, these days, but, um, but, but that was all part of my, you know, that was all part of yeah. my kind of psyche growing up. Well, and 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 justifiably so, I think, because I think sometimes, especially because we've been at war for the last 20 years in the West, we kind of gloss over the fact that, you know, the people that were raised in the late 70s and 80s and into the 90s, you know, there's kind of a sense that kinetic war was generally over, that yeah. that, was, that was a thing of the movies because you weren't going to see it again. And everybody was talking about, oh, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be cyber, it's going to be something else, but it's not going to be this kind of of fighting. And so to I I that makes complete sense. And I I can 
empathize with that a little bit. Um, yeah. It drove me back in far too late into the military because I was like, well, this is my freaking war. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I was like, I'm not going to miss it um, just because I'm a little bit older. But, yeah, I, I can I can completely understand that. And as a journalist. Yeah. So, you know, I thought I'll get my excitement and adventure as a journalist. And that's right. that is how right. it turned out. Um, but, you know, I mentioned that on 9-11, I was in Washington, D.C. So I'd, I'd been in Northern Ireland and had a it was a fantastic uh, period, you know, there was terrorism, there were peace talks, there were, you know, I wrote a book about the IRA and it was, it was, it was exciting and, and fulfilling. And then I was in, but then I was in Washington. It's like, it's a huge promotion. It's a big job. It's important, but it's, you know, guy, mostly guys in suits in the white house and Capitol Hill and, you know, and, and then there's this war going on. And I was like, really right. like, terrified of missing it yeah i already missed the gulf war you know and and then you know couldn't get to afghanistan and then i remember saddam statue came down in 2003 i had my head in my hands i couldn't believe it like i i'd missed another war and um, and of course you know spoiler (laughs) alert it it wasn't over right right and so then you know then I got sent to middle east in september 2003 and i thought i still thought oh it's just you know, mopping up in Mop Iraq. Mop up duty, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna, you know, I, I need to cover the Israelis and Palestinians. But then, uh, you know, I mean, the moment came in. I remember April 2004, um, and I went, I walked into the bar of the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem, which is a sort of famous sort of hotel where some spies and journalists hang out, stuff on the Green Line. And there was a guy called Patrick who was uh, uh, a French reporter for, I think, Le Figaro. And I walked into the bar and Patrick happened to be sitting there and he turned around. He's like, ah, Toby, what the fuck are we doing here? The story is in Iraq. We are in fucking Jerusalem. And I remember thinking like, shit, he's right. And, And so the next day I phoned up the office, the telegraph office in London said like, you know, listen, there's a, there's Marines being killed in Fallujah. There's army being killed in Sada city. Um, you know, I think 18 have been killed. Uh, That's the same. That's pretty close to the numbers in Somalia in 93. This is a big deal. I I need, I think I need to go to Iraq and I need to just sign off. I'd already been there on one reporting trip, but, um, and so I just like signed off and went to Iraq and, um, and it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was. I mean, last night I watched um, Platoon with my kids, <laughs> um, and uh, having first watched Zulu with my daughter when she must have been about five, um, and you know, and I remember this feeling. You know, I watched all these Vietnam movies before, and um, I remember you know being in Fallujah in two thousand and four. I remember going to in Ramadi. I remember in Sada City, uh, you know, being under fire. It's you know RPGs whizzing by and people being killed and and you know I remember you know more than one occasion sort of having this feeling of like shit. I, I'm I'm on the set of a Vietnam War movie. Yeah. This is yeah. this is what I could have you know. I mean I remember this um, soldier in Sada City. In a Humvee, we were we'd been in this police station, and there was 
come under attack and the RPGs flying around. I remember, you know, dust being kicked up in my feet from bullets and jumping in this Humvee. And this guy, and they were already pretty battle hardened. I think they were first cav. Mm. And um, there's this guy, he's got a bandana on. He's, um, you know, he had, he'd had, I think he probably took him off sunglasses. Um, he was like chewing tobacco and he's just, he's just beside me, just, just, you know, fucking blasting away. Yeah. You know, we're under full attack. You know, this, the um, top gunner firing away, this, this guy sitting next to me and he's, and he's like screaming. He's like, get some, get some. And, and then there's a bit of a lull. I, I looked at him and he's like, oh, you know, sorry about that. Sometimes I get a little bit too into it. <laughs> you know, he just like smiles at me. And I was like, this is yeah. just, I'm, I'm, I'm on a, you know, I'm on a movie set. This is yeah. just, it's just, it's so, you know, you use that word cinematic earlier. Like it's yeah. just yeah. visually and, um, and, you know, it's war. People get killed. I had to, on some level, I guess I was concerned about getting hurt myself, but I, you know, I was, I wasn't that young, but I was in my early thirties. So I, I still had that feeling of I'm going to live forever. Right. So I never thought right. about really seriously about dying or in some ways worse, getting my legs blown off or sure. you know, that sure. stuff. Um, so, you know, it was exciting and exhilarating and maybe there's a bit of immaturity or even sort of, I don't know, callousness about that, but well, it's, you the know, fear it was great. Of, it's the fear of missing out though too. Right. And, yeah. that, and that is a driver and, and it's driver. And I don't think necessarily a misplaced one. I mean, that can be taken too far, but it's, it's exercising your craft in an extreme situation. There's something about the purity of that. And because I mean, I think the parallel between a journalist's desire to be there and the mili- a mil- soldier's desire to be there is very similar. You yeah. want to be where the action is, but it's because you want to exercise your craft in the most pure extreme place. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to play backyard football. You want to be in the Super Bowl. So yeah. that's where you want to be, right? Yeah. And the, another element of this is um, I wanted to be tested. I wanted to test yeah. myself. I wanted to prove to myself that I could be in very dangerous situations and operate. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I know you've talk about talked about masculinity and stuff, but I wanted, I guess I wanted a sort of, to prove to myself and maybe to to others um, that I could, I could do this and that, you know, I wasn't just going to, um, you know, start crying and piss my pants and turtle up, freak yeah. out and, you know, and, um, and so, you know, I found that I, 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 and I found, you know, I was pleased, I guess, to find that I, that I could, that I could do it. And, um, what, what does that mean to a journalist when you say operate? Does that mean write, still churn out great stories that mean something to you? Does it mean that, hey, just in the moment, I didn't, you know, physiologically freeze up? What, yeah. what does that mean when you say that? I think all of that. Um, it's, it's, I don't know, there's a great feeling of, of sort of satisfaction and, I don't know, pride that, you know, I can get in there. I mean, say for Fallujah, for instance, you know, it was really hard to get the right embed. 
You know, at one point I had an embed in Ramadi, you know, during the Battle of Fallujah. And so I felt like it was a fight to, to get out of Ramadi and into Fallujah and then to get in the in the right unit. And then, you know, I'm, I'm you know, it was with David Bellavere, who was awarded oh, yeah. the Medal of Honor, you know, in, yeah. in the Task Force 2-2. And um, you were these real hard, battle-hardened guys, you know, who were going through hell, you know, I mean, the company I was with, the company commander, Sean Sims was, Captain Sean Sims was killed, the XO, Edward Iwan was killed, the battalion command sergeant major was killed. Um, and, you know, you're, you're there, you're not a soldier, you're kind of a burden to them in some ways. Um, you have all this stuff with equipment, like getting power, you have sat, you have a satellite phone, you can't use a laptop. So you have to dictate your copy through the satellite phone and you've got to preserve battery power, you know? So there's a kind of like a, there's a logistical challenge. Uh, it's a very competitive situation because there's loads of other right. journalists there. You right. want to get the best story. It feels like the first draft of history. Um, it's combat. Uh, and if you can get a good story out that you're proud of, um, that you sort of risked your life to get out, there's a, I don't know, it, yeah. it, it's a kind of a rush from from doing that. Now, you know, I mean, war journalists can be um, adrenaline junkies. And, sure. you know, I certainly experienced a bit of that. And I guess, you know, but I, for all sorts of reasons, kept it under control and you know, didn't spend 20 years and I do, do remember thinking, I don't want to be, you know, the guy sitting around the hotel pool, you know, in 20 years time in whatever conflict it is saying, Hey, do you remember, do you remember Baghdad, you know, in 2004 right. and we did right. this and there's this really cool shit and man, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not like that. You know, I didn't want to be like that. And that, you know, there are diminishing returns when you keep on, you know, you want to experience yes. some of it yeah, um, and not spend your whole life doing it. But, um, but yeah, you know, it was a, uh, it was in many ways a great thing to do. How much did you feel like you had an advantage, uh, even psychologically, because you had been in the British Navy? So it's like, hey, I'm not a total cake eating civilian. I mean, I can, yeah. you know, I've jocked up before. I tried to do this. There just weren't any wars happening. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it was an advantage. I mean, uh, it means you understand rank structures, you understand troops. You know, you understand why somebody would join the military because you did. And mm -hmm. so you have a kind of connection. Um, and so you understand the mindset. And, and you know, I would certainly mention it. You know, obviously, you don't want to be <laughs> some like, you know, staff sergeant in Sada City in 2004 doesn't really give a shit that you were in the Royal Navy, you know, but um, you didn't have any applicable experience that you could relate <laughs> at that moment to help them. Right, exactly. Navigate some obstacles. Okay. But, yeah. you know, I think it. It, it meant that I could, um, you know, I had a greater understanding than somebody that just had no kind of conception of what the military was. And, you know, obviously in the Royal Navy, I wasn't in combat or anything in approaching it. But I do, you know, I do remember, I remember one thing I did um, particularly was, um, so on board HMS Cornwall, uh, my job was as the captain secretary. I was like the executive assistant, really, to the captain of the ship, uh, who was the captain of a frigate squadron. So I did all his paperwork okay. um, and reports and stuff. But my 
um, so action station was to command the after section base. So the 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 um, firefighting and damage control. Oh, yeah, sure. Command station of the back half of the of the ship, which is in you know you know I grew up on the, you know the Falklands and you know when ships had exit missiles hit them that was a pretty important job. Sure. And it was it was hard to do you know, and because you know you're in command of all these sailors and you know you have to decide on compartments being flooded and when to shut the hatches where where to send the fire teams and stuff and um uh you know it didn't sort of come naturally to me because i wasn't like a specialist you know engineer or, or, or or anything and um uh but i remember there's a thing called FOST, which is flag officer sea training, where the ship gets put through, put through its paces and all aspects of the ship are, are tested. And I remember this would have been about 92, I think. Um, I was the officer of the day. I drew the short straw. I was the officer of the day during the main fire exercise for the ship alongside. And so the officer of the day has to be the in charge of you know, firefighting um, or any emergency uh, on on board the ship. And and so we knew when, for some reason, we knew when the fire, when the fire exercise was going to take place. And it was like, oh, shit, Toby, you've drawn the short straw. And I was like, oh, God, can't believe it. But at the same time, I guess I was thinking like, well, this would be kind Your of chance. Cool. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, you know, I can prove to those people who think that the captain's secretary is just some sort of non-com, you know, passenger that I can actually do it. And, and I knew that the, the, the staff um, who were testing us were, re- were ready for me to fuck up. You know, they wanted me to fuck up and to some degree they expected me to. And, but, you know, I talked to people about how to do it and, um, and uh, it was eerie. It's like a ghost ship because Everybody who's oh, not on duty yeah. during the fire exercise is ashore. Like they're sure. on, we're out of here. <laughs> so it's only those on duty and you just wait. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, it comes over the main broadcast system, like, you know, for exercise, for exercise, fire, 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 fire in, you know, compartment to Charlie forward engine, whatever it was. And, um, and somebody told me like, you know, what you've got to do is you've got to be cool. Like, you know, you know what to do, but don't, don't go running down to the um, main control route. Uh, what it's called? Like, what was it called? Can't remember. But there was a there was a kind of central command station for the for the ship, and that's where you did the firefighting from if you were the officer there. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they said, "Don't go running down there," you know, <laughs> <laughs> like an idiot bursting in and panicking and sweating. Have some composure. Yeah, yeah don't yeah, like. Yeah. Don't take your jack off and roll up your sleeves and, you know, and so, so it is. So I heard, I went down, I went, you know, walked down there quickly and then I walked in and then of course staff were all sort of lined up, you know, watching and, you know, and so I just remember sort of like, you know, keeping my, you know, cause you're in your number five. So you're, you're sort of, you know, your smart uniform, which is all kind of hot and stuff. Um, and I remember just sort of standing there and just <laughs> with my sort of like 
almost like Nelsonian with my yeah. I was gonna hand. say yeah, you have the little hand going. Yeah, there. yeah. I like just, it. Just yeah. just being really cool <laughs> and and just you know giving the orders and making the announcements because you're you know you're on the main broadcast and um and I just remember thinking like this is good because I could I could try, you know it was you know it was an exercise but it was sure, sure. it was somewhat stressful sure. and I and I remember thinking this is good this is good I can. I can do this. I can keep calm in a stressful situation. And so I really learned from that. And so, you know, if something goes wrong, you know, just in normal, I don't know, even in, in normal life, um, you know, I, I have an ability to remain calm. And even if it's something that could be quite bad, because I just, I, I believe very strongly that, you know, Panicking is the worst thing you can do. It's completely counterproductive, and you know it, it makes except no in sense. very very specific situations, like where you really need that drowning man strength. <laughs> but maybe, yeah. But outside of that, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and so certainly, you know, in Fallujah and in Sada City and um, uh, in Ramadi and you know other places, you know, in Rock in Helmand in in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Uh, you know, I learned to control stress and control my reactions and and remain calm and think clearly. And that was certainly something that I, I learned from the Navy. Where do you want to go next? What's still what's what's still on the list? What fascinates you? What excites you? Where where is your attention? <laughs> so uh, you know, I want to do another book. Um and I so the first book, Bandit Country, was published in ninety-nine. The second book, Dead Man Risen, was published in 2011. Uh, the third book, uh, First Casualty, was published in 2021. So this is about 10-year gap, right? And listen, you know, I had a life. Right, uh, right. You know, journalism and newspapers and, you know, sure. uh, um, the first two books were, you know, it was not my day job. Um, yeah, you weren't J.D. Salinger. I mean, you were actively doing a lot of other stuff that was yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, it just yeah, wasn't yeah. the books. yeah. Right? But I do want to up my hit rates. You know, I do. I, I mean, I think I have more books in me. I, I loved doing First Casualty. It was immensely rewarding. I felt I wrote something. I contributed to history. I think I helped people come to terms with things that happened. I think it was a book that no one else would have written um, in the way it was written. And so I want to, I want to do that again. And so you know, I have other ideas. One idea, um, obviously, I'm not going to reveal them, but you know, one touches on Vietnam um, uh, and the CIA, uh, and there's a sort of it touches on race in America and and immigration, and it's it's at the core of it is a kind of a story that it, it you know touches all those things, wow. and so that that's the kind that's the kind of yeah. Um, stuff I want to do. And, you know, it's funny, you know, I'm 56 now and um, there's lots of things in my life. I've, I now realize, yeah, I could do that, but I didn't enjoy it that much. Mm. Ex exhibit number one being American politics. Yeah, you know, yeah. I covered so many presidential elections. I can do it. Um, it's kind of fun going to rallies and speaking to voters and, and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, if I n never read another story about American politics or if I didn't know who the next president was, I'd be fine with that. 
I, yeah. I don't I don't care. You know, I'm not interested. I'm interested in ordinary people who actually have extraordinary qu- qualities and are put into, you know, extraordinary situations like David Tyson yep. would be yep. an, an example of that. I'm much, much more interested in that than, you know, what some member of Congress said to some yeah. White House yeah. official about, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it's I'm the, the sort of the how the, you know, the government shutdown was avoided or how the, <laughs> <laughs> or how right. the budget was, yeah, right. I don't care. I mean, for, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't care. And I, no, and, I, and I mean, God bless those that do it. I get yeah. it. You're uh, shining a spotlight for democracy. Awesome. Yeah. But man, I, I, yeah, I, I started to glaze over after a couple of those that that's, that's a tough road to hoe. Um, and especially in any kind of granular detail, it right. just starts to glaze over. But yeah, I agree with you. And and that's definitely what you captured with this one. Yeah. And I, I want to sort of, you know, you know, we don't live forever. And I want to do things, you know, obviously I have to pay the bills, but um, you know, I want to do things that are meaningful. I want to play to my strengths. Mm. Um, and I felt that I did do that with first casualty, and I'd like to do that again. What do you hope the legacy of First Casualty will be? I mean, you kind of hinted at it already that you thought it'd help people, yeah, and um, and that's certainly noble. But uh, yeah, I guess what would you want? What would you want people to say about it? So, you know, these are in some ways sort of depressing times, and what happens in, you know, in Afghanistan uh, last summer and continues to happen is like a huge bummer. Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of feelings about it. Certainly the members of Team Alpha and other people, anybody who's sort of served over there does. And I think it didn't have to turn out that way. Um, but I think, you know, again, we touched on this early. If you go back to 9-11, you know, as a country, we were united behind a sort of righteous cause. And there were people, Americans, who banded together and went out into the unknown and achieve something they they got something done and the whole country was was behind them and it was sort of the the best of the united states yeah i think there's a connection now with um certainly a number of team members of team alpha but david tyson justin sapp um shannon span mike's widow Mm. are working intensively on getting afghan allies out with with some success and some of the people who were in first casualty, you know, who were alongside them in uh, 2001 are being sort of evacuated now. And I think there's a bit of, maybe more than a bit of the sort of spirit of 9-11 in that effort where, you know, government's kind of fucked up. Private individuals are banding together, some military, ex-military, just good citizens, um, people who want to help, and they're getting something done. They're cutting through the bureaucracy they're filling the the vacuum left by the government and doing good and so i you know i feel yeah. that actually fills me with a lot of optimism in you know somewhat depressing times so i'd like that to be a sort of a takeaway i love that you said that um listeners here know how much we've been wrapped up in afghanistan and the fallout and um that's a that's a beautiful message and i yeah, we'll have to have you back on for a discussion of Afghanistan writ large in the future. If sure. Afghanistan goes south um, more than it already is, 
And to the point that, and when I say go south, what I really mean is that we start to get attacks here or in Western Europe that are that germinated in Afghanistan. Um, are you in? Is that something you want to cover? Does the Afghanistan start to become back on the front burners? Like, boy, that story's not over yet. Oh, yeah. Part of mine. Yeah. I mean, I think Afghanistan, I mean, you may feel the same. It's sort of unlike Iraq, it sort of sucks you in. You know, it's a sort of beguiling place, you know, and it's an incredible vi- vibrancy. There's an ama- amazing, you know, sometimes frustrating people. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, and also we just, we, you know, we abandon Afghanistan at our peril. I and mean, we did it before after the Soviets left. And then we were, you know, so. 1989 and then you know we're, we're back in 2001 and so i think we'll be we'll be back again probably and we shouldn't and we should you know we haven't got a embassy or a cia station or you know there but um you know we need to pay attention america doesn't unilaterally end wars you know they have a habit of continuing yeah. without us yeah um so uh and it's yeah. a country that needs adult supervision. Yeah, you can't <laughs> yeah. turn your, turn a blind eye to it, and, yeah. and that that we don't have a good legacy, a good history of ignoring it um, right. and having good results. Toby, this has uh, been beyond fascinating, man. The book is is brilliant. I, I as I said, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, thanks, thanks for coming on and talking about it with me. Sure, thank you for having me. And you know, if anybody wants a signed book, just hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. So I'm Toby Harden one on Instagram and Toby Harden on Twitter. I'm doing my best with some success to be very easy to get hold of. And so (laughs) don't hesitate to contact me. That was Toby Harnden's profile in Havoc. Again, as Toby said, you can always find him on Instagram at Toby Harnden one. That's T O B Y H A R N D E N one on Instagram, Toby Harnden one on Instagram. Um, And all of his links All the links to his books, to his Amazon page, and all the rest of that um, are there in the show notes, so I won't list all those here. Check out the show notes wherever you are listening to this podcast, and you will see every way to follow Toby, hear what he's up to, and purchase any and all of his books. This episode was brought to you by the Second Mission Foundation, as well as the Veterans Repertory Theater. The Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And full disclosure, this is my nonprofit. Uh, uh, The Veterans Repertory Theater also produces the Savage Wonder podcast. It produces the Savage Wonder literary blog. It produces the Write Loud events on Instagram Live. If you want to know what's going on with the Veterans Repertory Theater, Find out at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And from there, you can also find all of our social media links and everything else that's going on. There's a lot of lines of effort going on right now with VetRep, so check them all out at vetrep.org. The article that I will write that will accompany this episode is available at havocjournal.com, so check out... uh, you know, any kind of behind the scenes or alibis or show notes that I put out on Havoc Journal that accompany this episode. If you're listening to us on iTunes, go ahead and give us a five-star review if you'd be so kind. You can say whatever you want to us in the review, questions, comments, snide remarks, constructive criticism, um, any other kind of criticism. But if you can just put five stars, 
with your review. That would be great if you're listening on iTunes. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Toby Harnden, and we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.